Hello, podcast family, and welcome to another episode of Sisters in Scripture. It's your girl, Sister Glow here, and I am running solo today because our topic is one that is very sensitive, and it is probably going to hit home for a lot of people, including my friends, myself, because this topic is one that affects the whole community, but nobody likes to talk about it. So I'm here doing it by my lonesome, but I hope you guys enjoy and get something out of it. But before we start off with that, we will start in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that today's words, they touch the hearts of the people who are listening, Lord. I pray that they learn from this episode everything that you want to teach them, every reason that you included this story into the Bible, Lord. I pray that they can get what they need from it so that they can live on to have a great life and get through whatever pains or struggles or whatever sins or whatever envies that they have in their hearts, Lord. I pray that you bless them. I pray that you deliver them. And I pray that you help them with their future and anything that they stand in a need of. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. All right. So this story is taken from 2 Samuel 13. It is about the rape of Tamar. I do want to point out that this Tamar is a different Tamar than the Tamar that was Judah's daughter-in-law. This Tamar was the daughter of King David. We talked a lot about King David. King David had several wives. We know about eight of them that were named in the Bible. He could have had more, but he had several. One of his wives named Ahinoam had a son named Amnon. Amnon was actually his firstborn son. And his wife, Maka, bore him two, well, more than two, but one, a son named Absalom and a daughter named Tamar. Tamar was beautiful. She was a virgin. And Amnon had a crush on her. He just desired her so much that he made himself ill. Amnon's cousin, Jonadab, noticed that he was looking all glum. So he went over to him and he said, why do you, the prince, look so down? And Amnon responded, because I love my half-sister, Tamar. Jonadab advised him, well, pretend you are sick and ask your father to have Tamar go to your house to prepare for you a meal. So Amnon took Jonadab's advice and he pretended like he was sick and when his father David came to him he said I want my half-sister to fix me some food and feed it to me so David said okay and David told Tamar to go to fix Amnon a meal she did so she made him some bread but when she tried to give it to the servants to feed him, he said, no, he sent all his servants out of the house and he told her that he wanted her to feed him. So when she went to go feed him, he grabbed her and she pleaded for him to stop. She begged. She said, no, please don't do this wicked thing. He did not listen to her and he raped her. After Amnon intensely hated her and sent her away. She pleaded for him not to send her away, but 
he wouldn't listen. He had his servant throw her out of the house and bought the door shut. Tamar was devastated. She mourned. She cried. She put ashes on her head. She tore her robe. That was an ornate robe that virgins wore. She tore it and she wept loudly as she left. Her brother Absalom saw her grieving and tried to comfort her, but Tamar would not be comforted. She spent the rest of her days in Absalom's house as a desolate woman. Absalom never spoke to Amnon again after that. He hated his half-brother for what he did to his sister Tamar. When King David heard about the rape, he was furious. Two years later, Absalom went to his father requesting that all his brothers attend a party while his uh, servants were shearing his sheep. David was at first skeptical. skeptical. Um, Absalom also invited David, but David was skeptical. So he was like, no, I'm not going to go, but your brothers can go. And Absalom specifically requested that Amnon go. While Amnon was drinking, they were all out, him and all his brothers, they were all out. And while Amnon was drinking, while well, he was drunk, Absalom ordered his servant to kill Amnon. So the servant did so. The servant killed Amnon and all the, all the other princes fled. When word got back to David, they told David that Absalom had killed all his brothers, but that wasn't true. David mourned. David tore his clothes and grieved. But Jonadab, the same cousin, you know, that gave Amnon the bad advice, came to David and said, Absalom only killed Amnon because he raped Tamar, but all the other princes are alive. The other princes returned home, but David was still sad that Amnon had died for many days. Absalom fled to Geshur and stayed there for three years. David wanted to go to Geshur and see Absalom because he, you know, understood what was going on, but he didn't. So this is, as you can tell, a very, very, very crazy story, but I'm sharing it with you guys today for several reasons. Um, the first reason is that I feel like we as Christians and we as church members tend to ignore stories that are uncomfortable. And this is one of those stories, or we tend to ignore topics that are uncomfortable and rape is a very uncomfortable topic. And I'm like getting emotionally choked up just talking about it. But I think that is important to talk about because it's something that we as a people need to learn so that we can avoid it, so that we can teach our sons and our daughters that rape is wrong. And so that we can identify some of the misconceptions in the Bible. Um, and the misconceptions and biases in our own hearts that have to do with rape. One of the first misconceptions in the Bible is that, or not in the Bible, one of the first misconceptions in general when it comes to rape is, oh, the victim must have done something to provoke it. Um, this happens <laughs> Way more times than it should. It, it shouldn't happen at all. Victim blaming is a disgraceful means of coping with something. But why does it happen? Why do people blame the victim? 
There are many theories or many different reasons why people do it. Victim blaming can be because of ignorance, right? Because people don't really know what happened. And so they kind of just say, well, I, I just guess it's this. Before you look at, oh, that person blames the victim, look within too, because sometimes we will do some inadvertent victim blaming and it might not be rape. It could be anything. We all make the mistake sometimes of looking at the victim and saying, oh, what did they do to get into that abusive relationship? Maybe they should have chose a better husband. Maybe they should have locked their door. Even in the Bible with Bathsheba, how many times did we say, oh, Bathsheba seduced David? You know, that's victim blaming. <laughs> there's, there's many instances in the Bible where we have traditionally blamed the victim. The It could be that the person who's doing the victim blaming was actually a person who raped someone in the past. And it might be that they're blaming the victim on purpose, or maybe they don't even know that what they did was wrong. Sometimes men are men and women or people in general could be brought up with this attitude that they are superior, that they own things. And maybe, you know, fathers have taught them that women are objects. Different cultures also can see women as property, as was back in this day, too. So they don't even see rape as wrong. They see it as them just using their property. And that happens to today. I remember when I was watching the Playboy special and they showed a clip where Hugh Hefner was being interviewed. The interviewer asked Hugh Hefner, why can we not touch the bunnies? And instead of stating the obvious, well, because they're people, Hugh, Hugh Hefner couldn't even come up with a reason as to why they couldn't go and touch these women on their privates or wherever. I think that sometimes people forget that the person that is the object of their desire is not actually an object. They're a person with feelings and who have rights to say no. So I think that sometimes the person who blames the victim might have been a perpetrator or might not see anything wrong with the action of the perpetrator and instead says, oh, well, what did that woman do to make him think that it was okay and not taking ownership? It could also be that the person who is blaming the victim could have been someone who was lied about in the past where someone might have said, oh, he raped me or oh, he or oh, she raped me. And so because of that, they're tainted or they're biased. And now they think that all the victims are liars. But that's not true either. And I'm here to tell you that lying is wrong. You should not lie about anybody because that can also cause a lot of harm. It might be rationalization. So people, when we hear about things bad happening to people, a lot of times it provokes anxiety that it could happen to us. But if you rationalize it, oh, it happened to them because they were a bad person. It happened to them because they were out at the club. It happened to them because they were wearing the tight clothes. It happened to them because they were engaging in underage drink drinking. And because I don't do those things, it's not going to happen to me. That is far from the truth. Sometimes bad things happen to people no matter how hard you protect yourself. That does not mean do not protect yourself. By all means, please remain vigilant. 
please make sure you're in a safe environment. But just because that bad thing could have been prevented does not mean it was that person's fault. So there's a difference between trying to protect yourself and victim blaming. We can learn from the victim and not be a easy target. So it is not your fault if somebody slipped something in your drink. That's not your fault. That's their fault. They did that to you. But we can still learn from that and say, okay, I heard of a story where this girl was raped after someone slipped something into her drink. So I am going to be more vigilant. I'm not going to be an easy prey and I'm going to watch my drink. I'm not going to accept a drink from a stranger, things like that. That's the difference between victim blaming. Oh, she got raped because she didn't watch her drink and learning how not to be an easy prey. So I, I, even though I'm saying like you shouldn't victim blame, which you shouldn't, but instead of blaming them and saying, oh, that happened to them, but it won't happen to me because I'm this. No, be safe, be vigilant, but that does not mean because it happened to you and it could have been prevented that it was your fault. It was not. So that's one thing. Another reason why someone might blame the victim is because maybe like a lot of the Pharisees in the biblical days, they think good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. So since something bad happened to this person, what did they do to deserve it? That is absolutely not true. Good things happen to bad people. Bad things happen to good people. Jesus was perfect and bad things happened to him. So if that statement was true, then Jesus would have never been beaten, flogged, made fun of, set up, murdered, doubted, all these things that happened to Jesus that were bad, that people did to him would never have happened if bad things only happened to bad people. So before you decide that, oh, that might have happened to them because they were bad and you're blaming the victim and you're trying to figure out what bad thing that they did to bring that on them, just remember that Jesus was perfect and yet bad things happened to him too. So that's another reason to not blame the victim. Some people think that People all have some goodness in them. And if they were to rape somebody, then it must have been something that the victim brought on to, you know, mislead them or misguide them. Or there must have been some misunderstanding that caused this whole act from happening. But people are people. And sometimes people act evil. Sometimes people do things purely because they are selfish or lustful or malignant. Just like with Amnon, the rape of Tamar was purely Amnon's evil, lustful selfishness. It was not Tamar's fault. You could say, oh, why was she in the house when she knew her brother lusted after her? Why why did she stay after he sent the servants out? She should have known. But it was not Tamar's fault. Tamar was doing what she was supposed to do. She was being a good sister. She was being a good daughter. She was following her father's instructions. She was innocent in this whole thing. 
just like you, if you have ever been a victim of rape, please know this, you are not to blame. As victims, sometimes we tend to blame ourselves. I shouldn't have done this. I shouldn't have gone there. I should have known. I should have screamed. I should have fought. I should have left. You know, all these things that we do to ourselves when we are the victim. We have to know that the bad thing happened to us, but that does not define us. I would say Tamar's only fault in all this is what she did after the rape. It is okay to mourn and it is okay to cry and it is okay to be sad. But when you live in that and you let that stop you from doing anything else, that is what I would call having a victim mentality. It is okay to say, yes, this bad thing happened to me, but to live your life desolate because of what happened to you is an injustice to yourself. Even if you have been raped, molested, cheated on, beat up, uh, almost killed, you know, whatever crime has been done to you, that does not mean that it has to stop you from living. If you still got breath in your body, God still has a plan for you. You do not have to go hide out in your brother's house for the rest of your life doing nothing. But maybe Tamar did that because she blamed herself. Or maybe the loss of her innocence was too much to bear. I don't know. But just know that even if you are a victim of something, you cannot carry on this victim woe is me mindset. Okay. It's only going to leave you empty as it did Tamar. You can get through it. There's people who can help you. There's people who have been through it. There's professional help. You can talk to them. You can go to Jesus. There's a lot that can be done. All right, so I'm getting all kind of emotional here with this whole rape thing um, because it really does hit home. It hits home, I'm sure, for a lot of people. But I'm going to go back to the story with Tamar and Amnon, and we're going to break this down a little bit by little bit. So let's start with the the villains in this story. Um, the first villain I'm going to say is Jonadab. I want to talk about Jonadab. He is uh, the instigator in this story. He's the one who came up in with the plan. Actually, let's talk about both Jonadab and Amnon because I think that both of their intentions were similar and both villainous. Jonadab was the son of David's brother, Shimea. Shimea was the third son of Jesse. Shimea was passed over when Samuel came to Jesse's house to anoint the next king. And instead of Shimea, who was born before David, being anointed as king, David, his younger brother, was anointed. Shimea was also on the battlefield when David slew Goliath. So this person is the father of Jonadab. So Jonadab, obviously he had cruel intentions in this story. It says it in the story (laughs) that, you know, he was cunning um, and he was mischievous. 
I think that probably the resentment between brothers passed down from Shimea and David to Jonadab and Amnon. And you can hear it in Jonadab's tone when he first approached Amnon. Why are you down when you are a prince? I'm not a prince. I'm just a cousin. It was almost like he was hunting for drama and he saw someone who had what he did not have. And Amnon became his prey to cause drama and destruction in the house of David. Maybe it was for selfish reasons. Maybe Jonadab thought if I could break this family, then I could step up and be king one day. Amnon, very similar. Amnon was a prince, not only a prince, but he was the firstborn son of King David. He was heir to the throne of Israel. He was rich. He was famous. He was wealthy. He was honored. He was loved. He had a great family. He had a loving family. He had everything. He had a promising future because he was going to be king. He could have had any wife he wanted. He could have had several wives. If he wanted, the only person he couldn't have was his half-sister. And the reason why is because the law back then and now, thank God, prohibited brothers and sisters from, you know, being together. That literally was the only thing Amnon could not have. Here we have two people who have a lot already. But they covet this one thing. Jonadab coveted the royal position that uh, Amnon had. And Amnon coveted Tamar. So they were not content with everything they had. They had so much. They had almost anything someone could ask for back then. But they were so fixated on the one thing they couldn't have that they were willing to do so much evil for it. Now, before we judge Amnon and Jonadab, does that relate to our own life? I know it does relate to mine. It is something I can relate to because I know that I am blessed. I have a loving husband. I have food in my fridge. I have a roof over my head. I have healthy children. I have so much. But let a neighbor get a new car that I can't afford or go on a dream vacation that I can't afford or let a co-worker have a promotion that I was passed over for. It makes me feel sad. It makes me feel unworthy. It makes me want that. And a lot of times I lose focus on the many blessings that God has given me and I fixate on the little things that I don't have. Sometimes I will dwell on it. Sometimes that desire gets so bad that it affects my sleep. It can make me feel anxious. It can make me feel insecure. It can make me feel depressed. How often do we do this to ourselves? We have so many blessings, but yet we will fixate on the one or two things that we don't have. Single people want to be married. Married people want to go out and be single, people with no kids want kids, people with kids just want quiet and wish they could spend the money on themselves versus spending it all on their kids. Young people wish they were older and more stable. Older people wish they were younger and more energized and 
having more fun and excitement. It's everybody has somebody to envy. Coveting puts us in a place where we feel like I don't have anything. So I'm mad. I'm pissed. God, where are you? We can learn from Jonadab and Amnon about how to deal with those feelings of envy. One thing we need to do is we need to count our blessings every day, right? No, I don't have that Ferrari. However, I have a bed to sleep on. I have a roof over my head. Some people don't have that. We have to focus better on what we have instead of what we don't. Because if not, we might make ourselves sick coveting over those things and act out the way Amnon and Jonah, Jonah Dab did. They acted out with violence. They acted out with bad advice to their loved ones. You know, they acted out with being cunning and being evil pretty much. And we don't want to fall into that kind of trap. So another thing we can learn about um, Amnon's mistakes is he went to go talk to someone that he trusted and that trustworthy family member gave him bad advice, right? So one thing we can learn from Amnon is when you take advice from someone, that means anyone, even a close cousin, a friend, an advisor, which Jonabat, Jonadab was all those things to Amnon. We need to take advice with caution and discernment. Every advisor, every family member, every friend does not have our best interest at heart. Or even if they do give well-intended advice, it still might not be what God wants for us to do. We need to consult with God, the one who knows everything. It's good to listen to your friends and take advice, but take it with a grain of salt. Examine it and use discernment and pray. Pray before acting. I want to talk about something that I found really weird and actually disturbing. The scripture says that Amnon loved Tamar. I hate that. I hate that the scripture says that because he didn't love Tamar. Love is selfless and kind. Amnon was harsh and selfish. That was not love. But I think what the story is trying to illustrate is that love is often confused with lust. Amnon thought he loved his sister Tamar, but it wasn't love. It was lust the whole time. He wanted her. He wanted to take from her. He didn't want to give to her. Love is giving. It doesn't take and definitely doesn't throw you away after you got so <laughs> this was not love. It was envy. It was lust. It was infatuation. Amnon didn't care anything about his sister. He didn't care about her well-being. He didn't care about her feelings. He didn't listen to her. He was only concerned with receiving his own desires. And we can get these clues from Amnon to tell us the difference between love and lust. So if you are questioning someone's love for you, is it selfish? Is it kind? In my opinion, love is more than a feeling. Amnon probably felt an intense desire for her, but 
Love is more than that. Love is a persistent, selfless act. It also talked about how Amnon hated Tamar after he raped her. I think that Amnon really hated himself. He hated what he did. He felt dirty. He felt ashamed. And Tamar was a reminder of that. He was a victim blamer. So he sent her away. And I think that this speaks highly because as I'm talking, as I'm speaking, I'm speaking not just to the victim of rape, but also the rapist. A lot of times people do not realize the amount of psychological disorder that happens when someone is raped, not just for the victim, but also for the, the person who did the rape. Amnon was so disgusted probably with himself with the act that he he did this even even worse evil thing in back in that culture time back in that court culture if a woman was not a virgin she was not considered eligible to be married she wasn't dateable pretty much and if you weren't dateable if you weren't eligible to be married you were an outcast and if you were an outcast nobody was taking care of you as a woman you couldn't get a job yourself so you were going to be homeless you would be on the street you might be cast out of israel so that is what this act put tamar in in danger of and Amnon was so ashamed that he was willing to allow his sister, someone who he supposedly loved just 10 minutes before the rape occurred, to be homeless and be out on the street. And, you know, another show that he did not love this girl. He just lusted for her. And once he got what he wanted, he was out. Learn from Amnon's mistakes control your lust because it can eat you up too. Your lust can take you over too. You can hate yourself. You can be insecure. It can lead to your own depression. It can lead to your own shame. Beware. Tamar pleaded with Amnon and one of the last requests that she made before he raped her was just ask dad and I'm sure he will allow you to marry me instead. And then after the rape, she pleaded with him not to send her away. And this is a little bit confusing for us now. It wasn't that she wanted to be with her brother or that she wanted to stay with her rapist or marry her rapist. It was that she needed to survive and she was in survivor mode. She was thinking about, oh my God, I'm not virgin anymore. Nobody's going to want me. Nobody's going to want to take care of me. So if he doesn't, then I'm going to be out on the street. And that was her conditioning because of the culture back then. I think that a lot of times people who critique the Bible, point that out and saying, see how horrible the Bible is. The Bible promotes women to stay with their rapists. No, Tamar was 
afraid and it was a last stitch effort to save herself from death and homelessness and starvation and not that God is saying to us that if you are raped, you're supposed to be with the rapist. So I want to clarify that. Some things get misinterpreted because of cultural differences and the message is lost. People will point to Deuteronomy because Deuteronomy 22, 28 to 29 is a law in the Bible that a lot of people think promotes rape and forces the victim to marry the rapist. It does say that basically if, a, if and it depends on which translation you read, because some of it, the first part says rape. Some of it says take hold of, some of it says sleeps with, you know, it just depends on the Bible verse, but it says in that law that if a young woman is taken hold of, I'm going to quote, I'm going to um, use air quotes for that then she is supposed to marry her, the person who, you know, took hold of her. Okay. So this is what I want to clarify. In that, in the Hebrew word that was used in that verse, take hold of is tapas. Okay. Tapas is the Hebrew word that was used originally in this scripture verse. Now tapas literally means take hold of. So in this story, it's better translated as seduces or captures the heart of or fornicates with, not necessarily rape, okay? And so basically what this verse in this scripture means is that basically if you fornicate, then you're supposed to marry the person because, you know, God don't want you to be having all these baby mamas and be dead, be dads, okay? When you sleep with someone, then you are supposed to marry that someone so that you guys can raise y'all's kids together, okay? There's so much to learn from this story, which is why even though it's hard to share, I am sharing it. As you can learn from Amnon, Tamar, Jonadab, and David too. Let's talk about David for a little bit because David was their father. David, King David, we have talked about this before. We've talked about monogamy and how it is lacking in the Bible in some of these stories. And this is one of the examples of how polygamy has been harmful. Okay. There's several examples, pretty much every story in the Bible where there was a polygamous relationship, there was some drama in it. And in David's case, this is another story in the Bible where there was polygamy. And because of that polygamy, you have all of these half siblings running around and trouble is stirred. So this is another argument. A lot of people like to say, oh, the Bible promotes polygamy, but if you read the stories of the Bible and every story that was polygamous ended in some kind of tragedy, maybe it's not really trying to promote polygamy. Maybe it's trying to show the ills involved in polygamy. Just saying. I mean, you can read it for yourself and decide yourself. And I highly encourage you to read every single one of these stories and decide for yourself what God is trying to tell you. But King David. Poor King David. For a minute, 
just put yourself in King David's shoes. Could you imagine having a daughter that was raped? How would you feel about that? It would be heartbreaking. I'm pretty sure that you would want to kill whoever raped her or him for that matter, because let's keep it real. Men get raped too. Bible has stories about that too. But anyway, could you imagine being the mother or father of someone who was ravished and abused in this way? It will hurt. Now, I also want you to imagine this. What if you were the mother or the father of someone who was being accused of rape? Imagine that one. How would that make you feel? I would be devastated devastated if they were accused of rape or if they if i if they actually did rape you know either way it's hurtful king david had to deal with both at the same time he had to deal with a daughter who had been raped and a son who raped someone and <laughs> how would you react to that I have no idea how to react to that. David <laughs> was in a predicament. What does he do? Does he kill his son? Does he imprison him? What do you do with that? So David did nothing. Was that wrong? It feels wrong. It feels wrong to me. It feels like Amnon should have been punished in some way. But I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if that was wrong. I don't know what I would do in his situation. David doing nothing, it broke his entire family. And it, it led to Absalom hating his half-brother Amnon and Absalom also hating his father, which I'm going to spoil it a little bit. In the future, Absalom does try to does come back and try to overthrow his father, King David, for the throne. And there was this whole big old war between them. And it was crazy. And it was a lot more family drama. I'm telling you, the book of one and two Samuels is crazy. Okay, just read it. It's better than any kind of whatever movie you're watching or whatever series you're watching. Just trust. But this is one of those things that um, broke the family for... <laughs> Into as long as all these people lived, as long as Absalom, David, Tamar, and Amnon lived, it broke them. This 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 ten minutes of Amnon taking advantage of Tamar broke the whole family. So rape does not just affect the raped; it affects the whole family, and it affects the whole community because. Like I said, there was a war that broke out after this. It affected the entire community. And David is the father in this story. He has two children. One who was hurt and one who did the hurting. David represents our heavenly father. God has several children millions gazillions i don't know how many people there are in the world who have ever been but that's how many children that god has on this earth and sometimes one of his children hurts the other child 
what is our beloved father to do? He loves both of us. He loves the one who got hurt and the one who's doing the hurting. So what does God do? David's story is something that our father who arts in heaven has to deal with every minute of the day. God mourns when his loved ones, his children are hurt. But God also mourns when his children hurt others. He wants best for all his children, despite their flaws. He wants them to get along. He wants them to love each other. He wants them to be happy. So he sent rules and guidelines that we read about in this Bible so that we don't hurt ourselves or hurt each other. But sometimes we break those rules and that is what sin is. When we hurt ourselves, when we hurt each other, or when we hurt God. So what is God to do when we hurt each other or hurt ourselves? Because let's keep it real. We all sin. None of us are perfect. All of us end up being the perpetrator at some point in time. Sometimes we know it. Sometimes we don't. But because we all sin, we have all at some time hurt each hurt somebody else. Okay, so what is God supposed to do with us? He's supposed to kill us. You know, the way we probably thought that David was supposed to kill Amnon in this story or punish us. I mean, that might be it. And sometimes he does. Sometimes he will punish us for our sins. Sometimes our punishments go unpunished and our guilt is the punishment itself. It's crazy because whenever we are the victim, or whenever we feel like the victim, we want God to punish whoever hurt us. Strike them down, God. Strike them down. <laughs> but when we are the perpetrator, or we are begging for mercy. So it, it's, it's a constant dilemma with God. And just because you feel like someone has gotten away with something does not mean that God is not there or that God doesn't love you. And I know it's hard to hear. But God loves your enemies too. And I hate saying it because I hate it when I, you know, acknowledge that that is a fact. But it is a fact too. God loves the rapes and the rapists. That does not mean that you should go around raping or hurting or murdering people because you know, oh, well, God's going to love me anyway. Because our sin does hurt ourselves. As it's, as you can see with Amnon, this sin, did he did not go unscathed. He had to pay for his sins, okay? He had to pay for his sins with his horrible shame and the hatred that he lived the rest of his life feeling. He severed a relationship with his brother, his sister, and the relationship with his father and him suffered. And in the end, he died because of his sins, right? He was killed. His brother killed him. David understood why Absalom killed Amnon. I'm not saying that you should go around killing people, but David loved Absalom too. Even though he killed his brother, David considered Absalom's reasons. And David didn't go after Absalom to punish him, but he also didn't go after him to 
make up with him because this whole situation, Absalom, and you know, after he killed Amnon, he went and not necessarily head out, but he removed himself from the kingdom because he was angry at his father. He was angry at his father for seemingly let Amnon go unpunished for the crimes that he committed. How many of us get angry at God because it seems like the person who hurt us got away with it? How many of us leave the kingdom because of that? You might leave the kingdom now because I'm just saying that God loves the rapist too. And it is a hard thing to grasp. It is a hard thing for me to grasp until I realize that I am also a perpetrator and that God still loves me despite. Sometimes it feels like your enemies are getting away with being evil to you, but they don't just go around unscathed. They they hurt. God does allow us to face the repercussions of our sins, just like he allowed Amnon to face the repercussions of his sins. So that's that right there. And I'm going to tell you that it's further evidence that God does not endorse rape and the Bible does not endorse rape. Or if you read before in Deuteronomy 22, 25 through 27, that one, it says, if a young woman is raped, and I'm paraphrasing, please go back and read it yourself. If a young woman is raped, then the pe the people are supposed to stone the rapist. The rapist should be stoned to death, but the person who was raped should not have any charges because it was not her fault. Literally, it says it was not her fault. Now, in these verses, 25 through 27, when they say rape, they use this word Chazak, C-H-A-Z-A-Q, uh, in the original Hebrew Bible. And that word means to take hold of with force, a.k.a. rape. Okay. Now, I will point out that in the second one, it talks about the woman screaming out and it you know, gives all these details about it. But I think clearly, if they were trying to say it was the same sexual act, they would have same, used the same word both times. They would have said chizak both times, or they would have said tapaz back both times. But they said tapaz to me in the, in the, in the later verse to mean, you know, sex or seduction, or, you know, they fornicate it in chizak, which emphasizes that it was done with force, with force, rape. Okay. So, Further evidence that God does not promote, that his law does not support, that in the in the eyes of God and in the laws of the Bible and in the stories in the Bible, rape is seen as horrific. And in and, and, and in the Bible, it actually talks about corporal punishment for rape. And I know we've talked about corporal punishment a lot because really God is really the only person who should be determining that. But this is how traumatic God sees rape to the point where it deserves corporal punishment. That's pretty traumatic. So just think about that when someone tells you, oh, that the Bible promotes rape. It doesn't. And in this story, you can clearly see that it doesn't promote rape. And not just the story, other stories too. Genesis 19 is a story of Sodom and Gomorrah where there was attempted rape 
and that whole city was basically blown up. Genesis 34 talks about the rape of Dinah um, and her rapists were all killed. Judges 19 <laughs> was the rape of the concubine and that story also ended up in an all-out war amongst God's people and it was a horrific story as well. So each of these Bible stories, and I'm, I'm pretty sure there's more in there or more attempted rape, should I say, in there where it talks about how horrific these crimes were and how it didn't just affect the person who was raped. It affected the whole community. Even when Tamar pleaded with Amnon, she talked about how wicked the act was, how wicked it was amongst her people. She tried to point out that it would hurt him, that it would hurt her, that it would hurt their father. She pointed out that it was wicked, evil, foolish, disgraceful, and having no place amongst God's chosen people. Those were all things that she said when she was trying to steer him away from um, this action. The name Absalom means peace. So the scripture says that Tamar lived the rest of her days as a desolate woman in Absalom's house. She was in the house of peace. She was surrounded by peace and support and love, but yet she felt empty and depressed because what had what was done to her. Rape is a hard thing to get over. It scars you for life. But some people live with those scars and can go on to have fulfilling lives. Others, even with the support of loved ones surrounding them and peace surrounding them and safety surrounding them, they choose to let them fester. They choose to let them grow. Tamar never married. She never had children. She never became the queen that she was destined to be. You have a choice. If something bad has happened to you, are you going to let it fester and are you going to let it stop it from being everything that you are still destined to be? Or are you going to move on, learn from it, grow from it, and still become what you are destined to be despite it? Absalom also allowed for his hate to fester and he had a choice. He could go on and move on and be the prince that he was destined to be, or he could kill. And he chose to kill. I'm going to say understandably so, but it might be because I'm a little bit biased. We can let hatred fester our hearts and live our lives filled with hatred and vengeance, because that's how Absalom lived the rest of his life, was trying to seek vengeance. I have said a lot. So my final thoughts are this. If something bad has happened to you, that does not mean that it is your fault. That also means that you do not have to maintain a victim's mentality. You can live with those scars and you can go on to have a fulfilling life. Bad things happen. But we choose what to do 
after that bad thing has happened. The Bible does not promote or condone rape at all. It is actually the opposite. It strongly condemns rape. And it points out in its stories how horrific rape is and how it not just affects the raper, the rapist, but also their families and their communities. Let's go ahead and pray out. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this story that even though it was a very uncomfortable story to get through, that you allowed me to get through it. And I pray for each and every one of my listeners. I pray for the person who was a victim of such violent, horrific crimes, that you help them with their healing, that you give them comfort and peace, that you give them the strength to move on and continue to enjoy their life and live a fulfilling life despite whatever past obstacles have been placed in front of them and whatever horrific crimes have been done to them. Lord, I want to pray for the violator as well. May you help each and every one of them get the help that they need and the understanding of their actions so that they would not continue to do such things. Heavenly Father, we want to pray for the fathers of victims, the mothers of victims, the brothers and sisters of of victims, because these things affect them too. So we pray that you give them strength and comfort as they go through all those things. We pray for the family members of the people who have committed crimes, Lord. We, have, we pray for loved ones who are in jail. We pray that you help them grow from their mistakes, that you help them to understand and mature from it. And hopefully that you help them to inspire the younger generation so they do not continue to make the same mistakes that the older generation has made. In Jesus' name, we pray for all of these things. Amen.